This is the Employee Experience in Education podcast, the teacher retention podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brainstetter. In this podcast, we'll speak with educational leaders, former educators, and industry experts to better understand the employee experience in education. Our goal is to equip school leaders with realistic and actionable strategies to keep more teachers in the classroom. On this episode, we'll speak with Dr. Nick Wall, a retired superintendent with over 35 years of experience in education and current vice president of ECRA Group. Today, Nick discusses the importance of building effective teams and creating a collaborative culture in schools. Nick also shares the power and importance of belonging, ways to ensure there are no invisible children or adults in your school, and why storytelling has been a staple of his educational leadership success. Hey, Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited to hear about your reflections after spending 35 plus years in education. But before we get to that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and who should be paying attention today? Thanks, Eric. Great to be part of your world today. Um, Yeah, I spent 31 years working in public schools, um, anything from a classroom teacher to coach, athletic coach, athletic director, building principal for eight years and a superintendent for 16 the last five, I've been working on education across the United States in a consultative fashion. Um, it's real exciting because I get to talk to school leaders every day from all across the United States, just making them aware of leadership tools that can help them achieve their vision and mission of making sure all children are reached in their district and impacts do not come in a positive way. Today, I'm really interested and I've been following your podcast, listening to it's really a global challenge, but recruiting and retaining quality educators with our kids across not only the United States, but the globe, because we know the most effective way to impact student learning is in the classroom. Those that I would hope would be listening today are those in leadership positions who can, who are the ones that really can change the culture, change the way we look at how we recruit teachers and retain them, change the way we look at the concept of leadership, because I always saw every teacher as a leader. They're leading their classroom, principals leading the building, superintendent, the district, anyone in the leadership position that can really impact schools in a positive way. Yeah, that's great. And I I don't want to gloss over your background because you have a a varied background. So you've worked with elementary students all the way up through graduate level courses. And you've mentioned coaching and then being athletic director and then ranging from teacher to superintendent as well. So you've seen basically everything in public education. And within all of those experiences, I know that you've noticed a few patterns or themes over the course of your career. Can you describe a couple of those themes for us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I had the great luxury and privilege to teach at every level, elementary, middle school, junior high, high school, undergraduate courses, and grad courses. But a common thread through all those experiences, um, back to my classroom teaching days, is when I was a teacher, I felt a very strong sense of belonging to the building I was in. And I attribute that to the culture that was created in that building by leadership in that building. And and I learned a lot of what to do as a principal, as a teacher in that building. And I learned some things that I didn't want to do as a building principal. One being, um, I was never a fan of faculty meetings as a teacher where you, it was a sit and get. I just It, it just rubbed me wrong. It just felt like wasn't professional in my opinion. So when I became a building principal, I, you know, you, you just like when you become a teacher, you kind of teach how you, you were taught. And then you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't work for me. I'm going to build a community of learners in this classroom. And so when I became a principal, I started doing faculty meetings, like the first couple, like traditional. And I'm like, this is no. So I, my third one, I remember saying to the staff for this is not going to work this way. We're going to use this as professional development, teachers training teachers within the building. Because I had the great luxury as a principal to see every classroom every day. Teachers don't have that luxury. They're, you know, the kids come to the, in their classroom. If you're in middle school, they come to you. In high school, they come to you. Elementary, you got them all day. So you don't have a lot of time to go look at best practice in your building. But I did. So started, I started that teachers training teachers PD and really saw the energy that that gave teachers, not only the ones presenting, but the others in that shared professional environment. I started as principal in like 92. There was no PLC language or any of that stuff going on in 1992. But unbeknownst to me, that's what I was creating. Professional learning community, 
making sure we had synergy around our school improvement plan, making sure that was owned by the teachers. And it all comes back in my, my experience, teachers felt like they belonged and what they had to say was meaningful. And um, I can remember very distinctly coining the phrase um, as a suit, we need to do things with teachers, not to them. Because if you do it to them, it becomes a very different culture. So that's just a couple of things I learned, you know, as we, you know, you and I talk today. Yeah, let's let's dig into belonging a little bit more because that's that's such a powerful word and such a powerful concept. And right now, you alluded to it with recruiting issues, retention issues. So many teachers don't feel like they have a place within the school. So if you're a principal right now, you're a school leader, maybe even a district leader. How do you know if your your teachers have a sense of belonging or if they don't feel like they belong to the community? It's a great question. And it can't just be, you know, it feels good and, and you know, walk in the building, everything is, is feels like everybody's happy. It's got to be more intentional than that. It has to be a collaborative practice. Um, one thing that was really meaningful to me, not only as a teacher and a principal and a superintendent, was opportunities to meet in teams and grow together. And when I, when I was a teacher, as a middle school teacher, transitioned to junior high to a middle school. The, the principal did outstanding work in creating teams of teachers, and we actually had time to work as teams. It was fantastic. So when I became a building principal, I wanted to recreate that structure, which I did, because it builds that sense of community and collaboration. Um, if you don't, it's a sense of isolation because the building is structured to be an you know, you're teaching in a classroom, close the door, it's isolation. So you have to be, you know, anyone listening out there who is a leader, you have to be very intentional about building a collaborative culture because it doesn't just happen. It has to be in all practices you do. Example, as a principal, when I had a vacancy in the building uh, and we were doing interviews, that we, inter- we being myself as the principal and teachers, we're a team of interviewers. It wasn't just me bringing in candidates and going, yep, that's the one, okay. And they had a vested say in this, and their take on it was very critical to the recommendation who was going to be, be you know, become their colleague. And they knew it too. I mean, we could go, you know, because I may have had a different take. I have a different filter, you know, how I see things. Teachers have a different filter. But we created that collaborative environment. Teachers walked away going, uh, my voice really matters here. And my, I had a say. It doesn't mean everybody has a vote, but they had a say in like, hey, who should be part of the team and how vital that is? Because I was building team, always, always constantly building a team, always thought of myself as a coach back to my sports days. And I wanted to replicate that as a building leader. Did the same thing as a superintendent. Intentionally, if we had a building principal vacancy or assistant principal or director of curriculum, there was a team approach to this. It wasn't me just sitting on the side going, yep, that's the one I want. And that built a collaborative culture. Same thing with being a, and the teachers then knew that as a principal and a superintendent, so that when you needed to do things as a soup, like let's say collective bargaining, all the way along, we were doing interspace problem solving in my districts. If we had a program evaluation, we engaged the teachers in a very meaningful process. And they had a recommendation, which we took forward to action. That was very uncommon in the three districts I led as a superintendent prior to me coming there. It was like, oh, we'd form a committee. It was predestined what the committee was going to do. And then it just killed the culture. I'm like, no, that's not how it works here. You guys are part of the decision making. And then when you have that, our retention rate as a principal and superintendent was extremely high always 95 plus percent. It was something that we measured. I took great pride in that and paid great attention to that. And if someone was leaving, it could be a transfer of a spouse or whatever it is, always do an exit interview and find out what you did well, what you could do better. Onboarding, retaining. It's just the intentionality of it. It just can't be happenstance. Yeah, I remember. So when I was an administrator, I remember a sub that we had that all the teachers loved, wanted them, wanted her to be a part of their team moving forward. We had a resignation. We interviewed. 
we had a team of teachers as part of this committee interviewed this sub that everybody loved. It was interesting how myself and the other administrator were not fully on board with hiring this teacher. The other staff members after the interview were a little bit less excited about this. We ended up not hiring her for the position. And I remember hearing kind of rumors from other teachers of, well, why didn't they hire this person? It makes no sense. This person's great. So by having a team of teachers, it wasn't just us as administrators saying no to this person. It was everybody on the team that had conversations. And there were a couple of people within that team that still wanted to hire this person. The majority of us decided, no, this is not the best fit for us. So it's even interesting how even if the teachers don't get what they want necessarily, there's still that voice. There's still that collaboration. There's still that idea of, you know, we're teaming together to do what's best for our school, maybe not what's best for our own individual interests. A hundred percent. That that was my experience. And um, I mean, I took that all the way through. And then when you do massive things like big district referendums, which I did in, in Illinois and Indiana, you take the same approach. It's a collaborative community engaged practice. Business leaders were educated. Every The first thing I did in every referendum, Eric, I presented the rationale for the referendum with my team to every employee in the district, everyone within the district. It's a shared common mission engaging, first of all, everybody that works there, from bus drivers to cafeteria workers to custodians to facility, everybody, obviously teachers and administrators too, because then it was a Q&A opportunity and they felt like they were heard. They could ask questions. It was interactive. Then you get all the business leaders. Then you get all the home uh, realtor associations, everybody within the community that you could and be at every building to listen to the parents, obviously. It's a shared community engaged process. Um, so as I reflect on what I did, tried to do to my level best, it was to create a collaborative culture wherever I was, because it wasn't about, you know, when we did strategic planning in my districts, community engaged process, third party did it. We got it. It was a district plan. It wasn't Nick Wall's plan that he wrote in his office as a superintendent and then said, oh, here's my plan. And that's not how it works for me. And it had a much better chance of coming to fruition that way. So, so far with collaborative culture, we talked about belonging and how belonging is critical for people to have a positive employee experience within their school. What are some other kind of aspects or components of what makes a collaborative culture? I think you have to carve out opportunities for groups to tell their story, individuals and groups to tell their story. The power of storytelling in my career as, you know, working in schools and now is significant. Right before I talked to you today. I was talking to a superintendent from Kansas City. And that that was all about, tell me about your leadership, what you want to do. Tell me your vision. Tell me your story and listening. I did that when I was a teacher to the kids in my classroom. I didn't know it at that time, though, honestly. I did not know I was doing that as a teacher, just full disclosure. But as I became more mindful of it as a leader, it became real apparent to me that storytelling was going to be a significant part of my career, listening to stories more than me telling the stories. I think that was a very valuable add to my time building that collaborative culture, that culture where people felt like they belonged. You give time for people to tell their stories and you really have true empathy and you actually listen, A, you learn a lot, and B, you're gonna build a culture where people feel safe. I can't tell you how many times, and you probably experienced this as an administrator, teachers come in, and they're just having a tough day. They don't really want you to do anything, but listen to them. And I mean, I mean that sincerely. Sometimes they do, obviously, but just listening. And I can tell you numerous times I walk through my building as a principal, and I see teachers are struggling and having a tough time. I had intentional coffee break coupons. I could just say, you know, go take a coffee break. And I just took the class. But you have to be very actively engaged in your building to know, to be sensitive to that. That goes so far. I mean, just say, you know, what? here's a coffee break. You just get go take a few minutes. And they knew it wasn't judgmental, but it was part of the culture. Was it, They saw me every day in the classes, so it wasn't like, oh, my God, you know, Dr. Wall's walking through. What are we going to do now? It wasn't like that at all. But it's the intentionality and being present, um, that management by wondering in your building is so vital to get to be part of that. And that's the culture piece. I think even about, you know, 
most relationships, you know, I'm, I'm married, have a wonderful wife. And sometimes in being kind of stereotypical guy, I'd like to fix problems sometimes. It's not about fixing. It's about, I understand what you're going through. That must be really hard. And it's weird. That's harder for me to say than, oh, I have a solution for you. Why don't we do this to fix it? For me, it's more difficult to say, I understand how you feel. That must be really hard on you. I wonder why so many people are hardwired that way to not just be willing to listen, willing to open up. And I hear this from educators all the time too. I just want somebody to listen to me. I wish my administrator knew what it was actually like being here. So I've reinforced this several times on the podcast, just being willing to listen to people without, in addition here is without trying to solve the problem, just listen with empathy. Absolutely. That, that's why when you said, what are the, one of the common components of the collaborative culture, letting people tell a story, building an atmosphere where you can and they know they'll be heard doesn't mean they'll get everything they want, but they, they know they're safe, which again, builds a sense of belonging. And they know they're safe to take, you know, risks in the classroom as far as new techniques, new strategies to teach kids without being, you know, gotcha. It's that it's all that safety that you feel. It's just like kids in the classroom. If kids feel safe and belong and, and feel like they can, they can be themselves and grow, they're going to have a higher achievement. When I took, when I did my listening tour in my last two districts, I had one visual, one slide that I bring into the buildings and listen to teachers. It had the students in the center. It had well-being. It was a connective like Venn diagram, well-being and student achievement to look at a balanced approach to, to what we did with kids. Then underneath that, we then put our actions and, you know, initiatives in the, in the district to support well-being of students and student achievement, all focusing on the child. I can't tell you how many teachers came up to me after these listening sessions as a superintendent and said, oh, my God, you've just given me permission to get to know kids again. Because there's such pressure in the classroom. What's the standardized test score? How, what's, the, what's the district grade by the district? And I tried to make sure that was not the focus. Because if you make that the focus, you're putting unbelievable pressure on teachers. And every classroom that takes the state test, the teachers are so stressed about it. Put emphasis on them doing what they want to do. Learn and grow children. And I would always tell, and I mean this with all sincerity, as a principal and as a superintendent, I would tell all the new teachers, you're going to be, I don't care if you're a physics teacher, AP physics, if you're a second grade teacher, middle school science teacher, those kids that are walking into your classroom, you know, in the middle school and high school, 125 to 135 kids a day-ish in elementary, your classroom, those kids are not going to care how much you know until they know how much you care. Give them permission to get to know the kids first because it's all community building the classroom, in the building, in the district. But you have to be intentional and let teachers know it's okay to get to know your kids at the beginning of the year. You don't come in and just start cranking curriculum and you know standards at them on the first day. And explicitly saying that, giving people permission, I'll just reinforce that. You have to tell people, yes, you are allowed to make relationships. Yes, you are allowed to ask your kids how they're doing. Yes, you're allowed to feel with and for your kids. That's the beginning of a, a good relationship in the classroom, which just leads to the instructional and academic outcomes that you're hoping for. Totally agree. But you're, but I'm, I really did learn. You do have to give permission. You have to be, that's the intentionality of it. Just don't assume they're going to come in, especially beginning teachers. I mean, you and I were first year teachers. If someone would have came to me and said, Hey, it's okay to get to know your kids at the beginning of the year. That would have been such a stress relief because you walk in and just, I mean, my first teaching professional development was, okay, your classroom's down the hallway. I think there's some teacher's additions in there. Have a good year. There was no PD, zero PD. I learned from some very gracious teachers around me to really start to begin to process what this means to be teaching, you know, young adults. Um, but that was my PD. It was just, you know, trial by fire, get in there and go for it. Sure. Is there anything else about the collaborative culture that you want to reinforce? The, the other thing I really learned from this, especially as a superintendent, I inherited two districts with extremely volatile decades of labor management strife. What I learned from that is 
the intentionality, the belonging of the intent of the collaborative culture, but actually doing it at everything you do. Like when you get to the table for bargaining, really make sure you're letting stories be told, shared interests be mapped, and really allow everybody to realize we're actually all in this together. And then following through on it. You can't just talk about it. You have to be, you have to do it. And it's highly effective when done because then you're, as a leader, you can't be everywhere at one time, but you can't have influence over your culture if you're supporting all those endeavors from every interaction that you do, not only as an individual, but you're setting it up for giving your principal's permission to do that as well. Because I wasn't an Uber principal, I was a superintendent, but I supported my principals and still to this day believe and know from my practice, the most important administrative position in any district is the building principal. But the most important position in the educational process is teacher to student, no question about it. So I know, Nick, you work with school principals and other leaders on a few different key areas related to what you have found successful as a leader We've talked about team building a little bit, a little bit. I want to kind of break that down a little bit more. So when you think about building teams, and that could be as an entire district, it could be within a school, it could be within a grade level or department area. What are some best practices when you think about building the most effective teams possible? I'm not going to like cite journals or anything. I'm just going to go. I'm a practitioner. You know, I'm a practitioner at heart. You have to give permission and the biggest thing, time to allow for team building to happen. That's a big one. Um, when I was an elementary principal, I wanted to make sure there was time for team building. That's a big time challenge if you think about it for a minute. So I intentionally would construct the schedule, you know, the special schedule of music, art, PE, intentionally. So this was team building time for each grade level. Because when the master schedule was built, you don't think about master scheduling in elementary significantly, but it's it's huge because you're capturing time and moments of time for teachers to collaborate. So you have to give them time. Same thing with leaders as a superintendent to my, my leadership team. All my district leadership team, building leadership team, they were called teams by nature. Remember, when I inherited superintendent districts, it was like, here's a superintendent cabinet. I said, no, there's no cabinet. There's one cabinet in D.C., we're going to have leadership teams. So you have to be very intentional about naming it, about time to do it, and how you structure those times. My leadership teams knew that when we came together, we were talking meaningfully about strategic tactics connected to the strategic plan. All the administrative stuff, I can send that out through you know, memos and emails. I don't need to bore them with that. But we were very intentional of doing collaborative team related activities, either reporting out on the tactics that we're doing or spending time on that because building principals don't have time to like close their door for two hours and go, how are we doing on the strategic tactics today? So be very intentional with your time, allow for time for team building to happen and it can really you know, blossom into fruition. I also did it in practice. Uh, all three districts I came into may have been called I'm just going to use middle school. It may have been called middle schools, but they were junior. They were junior highs. Departmentalized, no teaming, no time for teaming. So we changed the structure of the day, 100%. So there was team time for them to actually work as a team and support that teaming structure. So the schedules are huge to support teams or not. And I coach leaders now. I'm like, okay, when do you have time within your your instructional? This, the work day or instructional day for teachers to actually plan and collaborate and do team time. If you don't think about it, they don't. Well, the master schedule doesn't allow for that. Well, it it doesn't now, but you can make it work because the, the schedule absolutely drives everything that you do, negatively or positively. It's just the driver. So be super intentional about that. Do you provide the expectation then that, you know, here when we're at, so I'm giving you this time to meet as a team. Do you give expectation of, I expect you to meet three days a week, four days a week, two days a week. Do you give them kind of a, you know, here's the PLC agenda or here's the format for your meeting, or do you leave that pretty open for each team to decide how to best use their own time? So it's an interesting question. Um, I look at it, I practice it this way. Um, again, the three districts I inherited, no strategic plan, very top-down line and staff decision-making. When you build teams, in my experience, 
either teams at the elementary building, teams at the middle school, teams at the high school, teams at the administrative level. I found over those 31 years and of those 31 years, 26 were as as an administrator in some capacity, the teams hold each other accountable. You set expectations for the time and the structure, but I never found myself having to micromanage that. When you set those expectations and, and really do the training, the onboarding, the teams hold each other accountable. I have found in my experience, if you, if you promote a teaming environment, people that are not performing will not last. Not because I'm coming in going, you got to go. It won't feel right for them. And the team really holds them accountable. It's actually quite fascinating. And I've actually looked at this and drafted a playbook for, you know, new superintendents as they come in, what, what are the things they should do? The teaming is a big one. And I, I have found they hold each other accountable. The other thing that really guides this, though, when you have a strategic plan and you have the tactics and the work plans for your team, there's no like guesswork as to what's expected of them. And they're part of the process. They're part of the strategic planning. They're part of the ongoing evaluation of how the strategic plan is working. Principals have great ideas during the school year. It tended to be like January, February. Hey, can we add this into the school day? I'd say, let's put that on the parking lot for our June administrative retreat, where we evaluate how we're doing on our strategic plan, our tactics, and see how that fits in. So they're heard. But you can't just, you know, in the middle of the year, start adding things into this instructional day. And what about, I know you're big on capacity building as well. How do you think about building the capacity of your teams? You have to really give them time and be intentional about building, you know, building the teams and the expectations of your team. Um, By that, I mean, any of the days we had during the school year that were teacher institute or professional development or whatever term it was, you had to be very mindful of what you're doing with that time and the expectations. Um, and I was very fortunate that I surrounded myself with strong leaders because I, I had no delusions that I was going to be everything to everyone in the district. That just that was not going to happen, nor that I expected to happen. So you have to have those structures in place. You have to do some training. The, I, I alluded and talked about interest-based problem solving, interest-based bargaining. That's, that's the getting trained in the Harvard way of getting to yes. That's a very intentional model that I brought into my districts to train the leaders, not only the leaders of the buildings as administrator, but the teacher leaders in that process. It's an extremely powerful process. Starting out with storytelling, shared interest, building design, even if it's a program evaluation, but if you, if you intentionally train people on how to do that and support them in doing it, it just permeates your culture in a very positive way because that feeds into collaboration. That's all about collaboration. That's all it is. And when you do that, it just permeates your district. And it's not, I don't have to be everywhere all the time. I just have to support it. And you do, you do provide formal training on that, though, too. Really creates a sense of belonging and leadership and the teacher leaders. The other thing I'm going to say, though, too, that really, I, I upon reflection, was extremely powerful for my first principalship, where I let the teachers train each other. I took that all the way through my districts as superintendent. Uh, district outside Chicago, we created an academy for new teachers that were coming in. What are best practices we want our teachers to be trained in? It was so effective that the veteran teachers were like, can we be part of this academy? You know, for continuing uh, um, was it CEUs in Illinois, I'm like, sure, continuous education units. So that expanded into all, and the teachers were the ones training it, the best practices. It wasn't administrators. So then my last district, we did the same thing, and it grew into a massive teachers training teachers during the year and in the summer. But the big thing about that is we paid teachers to do this we recognized and valued their expertise and they were paid additional, you know, it wasn't during their instructional time. So we weren't like double dipping, you know, summer, they were, they were doing this in, in after school because 
it was recognized and valued monetarily too. So often we just make teachers do more because, oh, we can, we can do that. I'm not a fan of that. They're professionals. Treat them as such. Yeah, it's interesting. So in my notes, as you've been talking, I've written down kind of, I've been trying to, to boil down what you're saying into here's how Nick Wall reflects back on his own education, educational career. So what I've heard you say so far, you haven't said the word vision, but you've mentioned the word intentionality a few different times, several different times, actually. So what I wrote was you have to have a vision of what you want, whether that's schedule, whether that's PD, how you want to roll out PD. Attach what that vision is a plan for that to happen. And then you have to implement that well, all with this idea of intentionality on the back end. So what I'm hearing you say is there's always a plan for things. We've we've identified what the, the focus is moving forward. We have a plan for it. We're going to roll it out in a very collaborative kind of way. As I'm saying that out loud to you, does that resonate with, as you're reflecting back, some of the processes that you've implemented? It does. And um, my vision, I, I didn't go around saying, hey, my vision is this. I was much more about the the district and the culture that I was attempting to, you know, foster and, and nurture. Um, but without a doubt, um, my, my vision statement was very clear everywhere I was. We don't want any invisible children in our district. I don't, and start there for a minute. Just think about that for a minute. And I'm actually working um, with school leaders on that concept now where you don't have any invisible kids, which goes into every child should have at least one meaningful, positive adult in the building for them. Could be the building secretary, could be the principal, could be their teacher, could be the bus driver. But, but that goes back to intentionality. So how do you find that out? You have to really make sure you know, give t- students a chance to say in a very um, confidential way, do they have a trusted adult in the building? Teachers a chance to say, do you know kids well enough to make sure that they have a trusted adult in you? And then where there's a gap in those two worlds, those are the invisible kids. You have to make sure you wrap services around to make sure they feel like they belong. Because generally, if they don't have that, they don't feel like they belong. So when I started my, my vision statement, I guess, when every district was, there's the child. That's, that's, that's why we're here. Let's start there. And when I would testify in Springfield, Illinois, when I was a superintendent, and then Indianapolis, Indiana, when I was in Indiana, I don't care what the Senate appropriations meeting or just, you know, asked to testify on whatever the bill was. I start the conversation saying, I've got, you know, my last district, 16,025 reasons why I'm here. It's about the kids in my district. So I guess really my focus always was kids, make sure we know that's why we're here and what we're, that's our purpose. And then all the wraparound services that influence the, our ability to have positive student outcomes, whatever you define as outcomes, that's where I really re- reflected. And I had a real seminal moment when I was a superintendent in 2005 in Chicago area. I was really trying to figure out something was just not right in my, didn't feel, didn't match with my way I viewed looking at how we do things. And um, it hit me. It was, it was not, it was the fall of my first year. I can tell you exactly where I was on 55th street driving down the road. Two things that I I just, it, it just came bright shining to me. We were making adult centered decisions at the meetings that I was, you know, the meetings I was participating in and leading, that's what the feeling was. We were not making child-centered decisions, student-centered decisions. And when you do that, it, in my experience, it brings total clarity to what you're doing. So, um, and we had, we were making positional decision-making. I'm the principal, I'm going to tell you to do this because of my position. Okay. So we had a, come to Jesus meeting at my next administrative meeting. I said, okay, here, let's look at this guys, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to start making student centered decision-making and we're going to stop doing it positionally. And some administrators gravitated to that beautifully. Majority of them did. Others did not. But those are some things, some guiding principles that really helped me focus on the child 
the community and making sure that we fostered those collaborative pieces and stayed out of this adult-centered world. Because when you really do that, though, the, the adults that, I mean, you were, you're in education for a long time. Generally, educators are great people to be around, honest to God. They're there to really make a difference in the lives of kids that they're working with. So when you start your start and end your decision-making with that, you're actually elevating and rewarding their purpose, why they got an education in the first place. What a 360 moment come back to belonging, though, too, because that's what we started the conversation today talking about belonging. What you just referenced was making sure that every kid has belonging, while also understanding that every adult needs to have belonging as well. What a what a powerful theme running through the conversation today. Yeah, I appreciate that. And you, you'll you you will appreciate this, too. When I was doing my last district, uh, list, excuse me, walking and listening to her, I started just talking to teachers and administrators and student-centered well-being and achievement. And I sensed there was a great amount of stress on the shoulders of particularly the principals. And I said, okay. And I, I, I said, okay, just, I went up to the screen. I said, okay, put you in your, a picture of you in the center of this as a student and your well-being and your achievement. And I said, now let's start to think about ways that we can do that we as a district can do that for you as a leader. And you start to think about how you can do that for your teachers in the building. The last thing you want to do is give teachers more to do. I mean, I would say explicitly to my administrative leaders at the February leadership team, above all, don't add anything to the teacher's plate from now to the end of the year. Don't do it. You get them to spring break, you do everything you can, the resources they need because they're working with kids. Take care of your teachers. Because when you take care of your teachers, you take care of your kids. So when, when principals start, and again, that fosters that, okay, I need to think about the well-being of my teachers in my building. I'm thinking about the well-being of my principals on my leadership team and the assistant soups. And we'd start, you know, the meetings with that. Uh, it's extremely powerful and very reflective because then it gets them to think about the kids, gets them to think about the teachers. It, it connects. And, I, and in my experience, it made sense. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. So I know right now you're you're coaching a lot of school leaders and other leaders. What what are some common themes? So speaking of you know, getting close to spring break time coming up, a lot of districts right now have spring break. What are some common themes that you're seeing right now that school leaders need some coaching in? And, and what are you telling them? What advice are you giving them? Um, it's interesting because I've been at a number of conferences this year, too, meeting with a lot of superintendents. And then I'm also meeting with a lot of building principals. A theme running through this this, this school year is concern for the well-being of the adults in the building. You know, we're, we're still de- dealing with the pandemic, you know, post-pandemic kind of challenges. And so I probed this. I'm like, what did you see last year? What was your primary concern last year? Last year, they said the students were really concerning, you know, escalation and aggression, escalation and discipline. You know, kids came back and really were adjusting in a very aggressive way to being in person. So they put a lot of efforts into that. And this is not, this is just a sample set across the country, uh, not, not anything empirical, but this year they say they feel very, they feel better about the student behaviors are, are much better engagement. You know, when you have reduced student discipline, that means they're engaging in the classroom, which is good. That's where you want them to be. And I would tell teachers when I was a principal and they'd say, I have student classroom management issues. You know, student does. I would say that's not actually the challenge. The challenge is, is you don't have, you have student engagement challenges. You're not engaging the students in learning. Let's gr- do a growth mindset. Focus on that, not the fact that they're engaging in mischief or discipline. They're engaging in that because you're not engaging that in learning. Let's just call it. But this year, they're having trouble. Leaders are having challenges with well-being of their adults. And many school leaders are being super intentional and I'm encouraging them, make sure all your teachers are aware of your employee assistance program, the benefits of your EAP, because there's counseling within that. There are, if there are challenges with maybe substance abuse, there's addiction help that they can get in that. Maybe they're having trouble with, uh, you know, 
relationship of their spouse or partner. There's counseling that they can get with that. And I'm saying, make sure your teachers know about the AP. It's really stunning to me that I get a lot of looks like, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, this is this is a big well-being thing. Your insurance plan offers this. Leverage this. Make them aware. Whatever communication you do where teachers pay attention and, and lead, any employees pay attention, get that information in their hands and make it easily accessible. Um, that's been a big thing this year. And then focusing on, it's, it's really interesting. It's a great question, by the way, Eric, because I'm hearing so often, we want to get back to normal how it was before the pandemic. So I let them know, stop thinking that way. Okay. We're not going to do that. Let's, let's, it's a growth mindset. What are, I want you to write down some things that you do now that are really positive spinoffs of the pandemic. Anything from some virtual learning you can do to PD for your teachers to just communication with Google Classroom or whatever you're doing now that has really enhanced student to teacher interaction and learning as a result. Now let's forget about normal. Let's just chart out an action plan, school improvement plan um, with one district. I'm recalibrating with them their, their mission. What's their mission with the buildings and the district? Let's do Let's reboot this. It doesn't help to say, man, March 11th, 2020, kids were in school. Yeah, that's okay. Let's look at March 15th, 2023, and let's chart out an action plan or a school improvement plan or a district vision mission based upon where you're at now. It it helps to do that. I don't say that in like a judgmental way. I'm like, just, it doesn't do any good to think back to that, that, that normal. Yeah, that's why. So just always moving forward because what's in the past is in the past. So the only thing that you can impact is moving forward. And and right now I'm working with districts and building principals on it's March. Like I said, don't introduce anything new. But now start to start to think where you want to be when the kids come in next fall as far as your school. If you're a building principal, your school improvement planning, your engagement and staff in that. Do you need to have some task force that work with you, teaming? Start to think about that and backward map from next fall to now. You know, what things you want to do, what leverage you want to do. But don't do anything where you're piling stuff onto your classroom teachers and district leaders, making them extremely mindful of resources out there to help them understand if what they're doing is having a positive impact on student outcomes. Help them have access to the challenges of recruiting teachers, retaining teachers, all those things, because that's, that's ever present everywhere. Yeah. So great segue talking about student outcomes and making sure that you're focusing on the things that have efficacy. Can you talk a little bit about the work you're doing within ECRA group and the impact you're able to make there? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, ECRA group is a data and analytics firm. It's been around 42 years, just outside of Chicago. Uh, I joined the team about 18 months ago, and my task is to predominantly talk with superintendents across the nation and make them aware of the data and analytic tools that we offer our school partners that really allow them in two fronts to help leverage and make sure that they can really make sure they're reaching all kids. The one solution is a strategic dashboard which which helps districts tell their story, which, as you know, I'm a big storyteller fan. But more importantly, it's measuring the key performance indicators within the strategic plan to be very transparent to their community and their board and their employees, where the resources are going and what the results are as a result of allocation of resources from student success to district criteria characteristics to financial you know, use, that's a dashboard. The other one, the other tool we have is a very sophisticated predictive analytic, but what it takes is student achievement data and lets districts know how students are performing as a result of the programs. And I mean programs, whatever's in the classroom, as a result of the programs in that in that building, in that district, so that they can identify, A, are there any invisible kids falling through the crack that are not performing? You know, the, the analytics... It's a capacity thing with districts. Districts don't have the capacity to, in two clicks, know their tier three kids in third grade in reading. 
we give them the tools so they know that. So just imagine in the spring of the year, you know, at elementary, middle, and high school, your tier three kids, so that you're preparing them and, you know, putting interventions in place in the summer are for the next school year. So this unfinished learning, we call it at ECRA, this unfinished learning can be achieved and you can allocate resources to that. We also can then evaluate any pro program you have. Let's say you're, you have instructional coaches or your summer school program or your reading intervention. We can tell you with great evidence-based accuracy how that's reaching the kids at a global, like classroom level, you know, district, building, classroom, um, down to the individual child. So if you get a report, let's just use your tier three kids in reading in third grade. You'll get a report overall how the students are, are performing. We use effect size growth. But then you do one click and you see a list of the kids. And you'll see which kids are growing above where they should be, which is good because it's remediation. So you're not going to focus on them. You just keep doing that. But you're going to see individually what kids are not performing at all or negatively. And they can intervene in real time. In real time. There's no lagging indicator. It's like, oh, you get the test results in the, in the summer for the spring and you can't do anything. We're giving them real-time information so they can intervene like right now. I'll give you an example. Two, two falls ago, the district was administering NWA map growth, which is fall, winter, spring. They had implemented a very comprehensive reading intervention for the kids for unfinished learning from COVID. And they had, they had eight elementaries. So they got the results in the fall. Five of the elementaries were growing blue, which means they're growing better than expected because it's remediation and unfinished. Three were growing yellow, which means they, they had been, they had done better off, been better off not to do anything. Literally, they're harming learning. So we went in there with their leadership team. We rolled up our sleeves. We shined the light on the data. We went down from building to classroom to individual children, and we found two trends with them. One, those three buildings did not get staff development with proper fidelity. So they they redid that PD in the fall. The second thing, for whatever reason, we don't tell them what to do. We just make sure they're aware of what's going on. They were pulling kids out of tier one instruction to get reading intervention. And so all those kids were missing tier one instruction. So we, in the fall, we suggested push that reading in. By the winter map growth, they had turned around to green. And by the spring, it was blue. So changes to make things to impact student outcomes in a positive way while the kids are in the classroom in real time. It's just really amazing. I wish I would have had these tools as a principal and a superintendent. For sure. sounds like it. We have some, I guess, some rapid fire questions to end today, Nick. If you okay. can go back and give yourself advice before you first became an administrator, what would that advice be? I would have said stay in the classroom longer because I really, I really don't think I started to appreciate I appreciate teachers all the time. I didn't appreciate the art of teaching until I started like myself teaching more at undergrad and grad school. So I think that would have been a, a benefit to me as a building principal and superintendent. Sure. What is one action or strategy you hope that every school leader walks away today based on our conversation? Um, that they start with focusing on known visible children and build a culture in their building or district that not only supports that, but you feel it all through the organization because that really, as I said, that really clears up decision-making, goal-setting, strategic planning, and really how you're treating, you know, administrators and everyone in your district because the shared interest is the kid from the parent to the, to the teacher, to principal, that shared interest. So, so always start there with your thinking and your, and then your actions will follow. And what's one celebration you want to share with the audience today? I'm, I'm, there's one, there's a, there's something I think could really be, get some traction. I'm working with a couple building principles where we're really being extremely intentional about the known visible children by focusing on the listening to the teachers and listening to the students. And this spring, both of those buildings, I, I can't talk specifically about, you know, where they're at and who they are. But the end product is going to be a very intentional mentoring program for the students in that building. So they'll, they'll be intentionally connected 
to adults in that building. So I'm really excited about that work because two separate buildings, nothing to do with each other, having very common elements that are popping up within the survey structure. I mean, literally, when you because when you ask the leadership, you know, I said, well, there's no invisible kids. And they go, what do you mean by that? I said, do you think that every one of your kids is connected in a meaningful way and has a trusted adult in the building? Yeah, no question. Next question. The very two basic questions. When I did my dissertation, I uncovered a lot of research, and it's still accurate, on students engaged in one meaningful extracurricular outside of the classroom. It impacts their student achievement in a positive way, and it reduces their discipline. So that, that research is still valid today. So the next question I asked these leaders, I said, how many, what percentage of your children are not involved in an extra, meaningful extracurricular in your building? These are secondary schools. Well, they're all involved. So they did the surveys and they got the results. I just got these back last week. So in one building, 11.3% of the students are re- reporting they don't have a trusted adult, which just crushed these principles. In the other building, it was 11.7. So this is not trend data yet, but it's interesting. And then meaningful extracurricular, it was 25 and 27%, not involved in an extracurricular. And first of all, the, the building leaders were literally crushed by this data. I said, it's okay. Now this is going to inform the work of the mentoring program going for next fall. So I'm actually super excited about this because... I'm pretty sure this can be replicated and it goes into the intentionality and it goes back into if kids feel like they belong, they're going to be less inclined to be negative behavior and it impacts their ability to achieve. So super excited about those two simultaneous projects going on right now. It's pretty cool. It gets me energized. Uh, That is a celebration. That's great. And Nick, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way of them doing that? Probably LinkedIn. I'm super active on LinkedIn. Um, just, you know, look me up, you know, and very engaged on link, the LinkedIn platform. And I'll include your link in the show notes as well. Well, Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. It's an amazing conversation. It's always good to connect with you. Thanks for your time and all you're doing for us. Thank you, Eric, for being this medium to allow other leaders and other school folks to We just want to learn from each other. You're building a collaborative culture right here with your podcast. So thank you. If you haven't yet today, go thank an educator for all they're doing for us. This has been the Employee Experience in Education podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks and have a wonderful day.